Oh, hello you. It's David Robertson here. You're listening to the Religious Studies Project, which you probably realise. And I'm here with my regular co-host and good chum, Christopher Carter. Just hearing the initial piano chord at the beginning of the podcast there, I suddenly thought, oh, it sounds as if the piano is going to go down the scale. And then go into nobody does. Talking of nobody doing it better, who's this week's interview from, Chris? <laughs> this week's interview is with uh, Katie Aston speaking to Anna Strahan on evangelicalism and civic space. And it's part of our Socrel series. A series sponsored by the British Sociological Association's Sociology of Religion Study Group um, to celebrate their 40th anniversary entitled New Horizons in the Sociology of Religion. This is the third one. We've had Don Llewellyn a couple of weeks ago and Grace Davy a couple of weeks before that. But now let's pass over to Katie to tell us a little bit more about it. Hi, this is uh, Katie. Um, I'm at Helsinki at the EASR conference and I'm um, here with Anna Strahan from Kent University, who's a lecturer in religious studies. And I'd, um, I'd like to ask you first um, to give a brief sort of background of your discipline, because I know that you have kind of come to your research through the sort of variety of backgrounds. Yes, I've moved have. around quite a bit. Yeah. So, um, well, my I guess my initial formation was in theology and religious studies. Um, I studied that at Cambridge back in the late 90s. And I guess I was originally drawn to theology and religious studies because I was interested in philosophy and I was interested in questions about meaning and the meaning of life. And theology seemed a way of exploring that for me. And I really enjoyed the degree. Um, I liked the fact that I got to look at those kinds of questions, but look at that in the context of particular cultural histories. So looking like there was a really great course we did in the first term that looked at sort of Durkheim, Freud, Marx and literature as well. So also looked at Dostoevsky. So I was interested in those kinds of questions. And through that, I guess I also became particularly interested in continental philosophy. So I then moved more into the study of philosophy and literature and did an MA in philosophy, literature and religion at Sussex, which kind of continued um, exploring those kinds of questions. Um, but I think I felt like I wanted to look at philosophy, but look at that in a kind of practical context as well. Um, after the MA, I became a school teacher and um, of religious studies, secondary school teacher. And so I ended up deciding that I wanted to pursue um, research in philosophy of education. So I applied for and did a PhD part-time while a school teacher in philosophy of education. And that was looking particularly at the work of Emmanuel Levinas, who's um, a Jewish philosopher who's kind of engaged with questions about the meaning of ethics mm-hmm. of in modernity, kind of questioning the nature of the human subject is. And my work in that, um, I guess it was a kind of critique and examination of how contemporary educational discourses, and also in relation to religion as well, kind of are based on a particular understanding of the human subject and how Levinas offers a kind of potentially richer vision of what human subjectivity and knowledge and language are. Um, so I did that in philosophy of education, but during that I think I became somewhat, I guess, frustrated with kind of splits in philosophy between the kind of analytic and the kind of continental um, styles of working, um, and 
I was based in a social sciences institution. I was at the Institute of Education in London. And um, I used to um, go to um, social sciences seminars and I found that work really interesting. The fact that it engaged with kind of the practicalities of, of real life. Um, and then um, uh, the opportunity came up to do a second PhD full time. Um, that was a study of looking at evangelical subjectivities. And I was interested in the concept of subjectivity through my work on Levinas. And I thought, well, why not? I, I had a background as a teenager within evangelical Christianity. So I'd say I had personal reasons for investigating that as well. So I ended up applying for that. And that was kind of how I moved from theology into philosophy, into philosophy of education, and ultimately into sociology of religion. But I'd say that my work is still... You know, one thing I really like about religious studies is that interdisciplinarity. So I'd locate my work in sociology of religion. But the questions that I'm interested in, say, in that, that PhD, it ended up looking at questions to do with space and cities and evangelicalism as well as subjectivity. You know, you can draw on sort of debates in, say, space and geography as well as sociology, as, as well as kind of debates in anthropology as well and kind of philosophical resources as well. So that's kind of one thing I value about the discipline. So. That's a kind of yeah. biography. <laughs> <laughs> a very uh, sort of uh, um, roadmap of your career, as it were. Um, so, for, so the sort of um, second PhD was um, on evangelical Christians mm. and subjectivity, mm. and that's now been published as a book, Aliens and Strangers. Yes. Um, can you tell us a bit about um, the sort of content of the book, what the sort of main themes of the book are? Mm. Yeah, well, I, my original... Um, road into that book, so how it kind of shifted slightly the focus of it over time as, as happens when you do a PhD. So I'd say that the kind of argument of the book is about how evangelical, conservative evangelicalism in particular, is about a sort of search for coherence mm -hmm. amidst the kind of messiness of urban life in modernity. So that's kind of the thesis in a, in a nutshell, that evangelicals become particularly preoccupied with searching for coherence because they focus on the idea of a God who is completely coherent. And that makes them conscious of kind of fragmentations and disorder within themselves and society and to kind of work to try and form themselves as coherent subject, which is a which is ultimately impossible in a sense. Um, the kind of the way into that um, was there, there are kind of particular tensions within the Anglican communion around sexuality, women bishops, that kind of thing. And it felt really important because there isn't much work on conservative evangelicalism, particularly in a UK context, to look at what it's actually like to be a member of one of those more conservative churches. How do they come to inhabit their place in a kind of metropolitan, cosmopolitan um, context in which their views on, say, sexuality, gender, and um, other religions are fairly countercultural. So um, I found a church to study um, that was quite active in sort of campaigning within the kind of conservative wing on the, of the Anglican communion that was sort of in tension with, you know, kind of formed alliances with conservative churches in the United States and um, in Africa around issues of sexuality. But um, I found that when I began the study, the concerns of the leaders 
in agitating around those issues didn't necessarily reflect, you know, those weren't priorities for the members of the churches. So the focus of the study kind of shifted away from some of those kind of church political issues and really ended up focusing much more on just what it's like to be a member of those churches. And, I mean, those issues of sexuality and gender are there in the book because they're kind of significant for how people came to see themselves as aliens and strangers in a sense that they were aware that they held different views from their peers around, say, uh, the roles of women and men in marriage. Um, But I also wanted to explore what they felt to be the most important aspects of their faith. And so they articulated a sense of themselves as striving to be people who listen to God, who speak about their faith publicly, even if they quite often struggle with that. And I wanted to look at the kind of actual sort of embodied techniques by which that formation takes place. Mm-hmm. Lots of people kind of tend to think of conservative evangelicalism as a sort of almost sort of disembodied or dematerialized in a sense because, you know, evangelicals themselves will put a lot of emphasis on the idea of having a sort of unmediated relationship with God in some senses. But at the same time, they're very conscious of, you know, the need to discipline themselves to be able to hear God in particular ways. And kind of bound up with that, I wanted to also look at, so emerging from that focus, I also explored how they actually think about God, because a lot of work in the study of religion doesn't really actually engage with sacred figures, and there's sort of beginning to be much more work on that, but I think it's actually really Mm. important to look at that, and so looking at their kind of sense of relationship with God was a kind of fundamental aspect of looking at what it means to be an evangelical Mm -hmm. subject, but bound up with that, I also was struck by how they also articulated narratives of doubt and uncertainty, which again is quite contra to how people outside of the movement think of evangelicalism. So the book, the final chapter of the book looks at how their experience of relationship with God is also permeated by these experiences of doubt and how their forms of relationality with each other are kind of techniques that they're quite self-conscious about as means that enable them to keep going in their faith in which, you know, their faith is quite hard work. Um, so the book is about sort of evangelical subjectivity and intersubjectivity. Yes. Um, so is that um, intersubjectivity, the relationships, is that what that refers to? Yeah, the relationships with each other and with God and with those outside. And the intersubjectivity is also about how they come to identify particular people as self and other. So the ways in which they think of God as other mm-hmm. in particular ways, how they identify with each other. Mm-hmm. And how they locate particular others outside of the church. And those others would also, would include not just non-Christians, but also other Christians Mm -hmm. as well often. So it's about what, how subjects are constructed in Mm -hmm. particular ways. Um, and I, I, um, there's a sort of recent trend in the sociology of religion towards studies of secularism um, Mm -hmm. and the secular. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about how the work that you've done sort of shines some light on that question of the secular? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the secular wasn't something I expected mm-hmm. to find when, or, you know, to be end up exploring when looking at um, evangelicals because they often articulate a sense of secularism as something that's opposed to them, with a sort of particular understanding of mm-hmm. secularism as anti-religious. Mm-hmm. Um, but... 
And so that, in a sense, provided a kind of background context. I looked at what, for them, the secular meant in that sense. But I was also quite aware of the kind of broader sense of the secular, as I suppose, a situation in which to be religious is one choice amongst others, in a way, um, in which religion doesn't provide the overall framework, and how my informants were very much shaped by secular sensibilities. So they definitely kind of positioned their kind of discourses around, say, um, their rights as subjects within kind of secular human rights discourses, mm-hmm. sort of the idea that they should have a right to speak of their faith or to evangelize was kind of articulated in those terms. But also this sort of sense of religion as something that's private and personal, they were sort of divided on that within themselves. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, they wanted to speak of their faith to witness to people at work as they would, as they would put it. But on the other hand, they felt kind of experiences, not all of them, but many of them felt sort of experiences of awkwardness or anxiety around the idea that they should be out as Christians mm-hmm. to their colleagues. This sort of awareness that kind of broader society shapes faith as something that's a kind of private personal matter so in a sense they were secular subjects in that sense but they were also religious Mm -hmm. as well so I guess I would see the work as um, hopefully challenging kind of simplistic binaries that Mm -hmm. someone's either religious or secular that you might be both in quite complex ways Mm -hmm. Um, and is that emergent as a finding specifically to the city, because the city obviously plays a huge part in the work that you're doing, or is that something that um, is is true of kind of non-city-dwelling kind of evangelical groups? Or? Um, my sense is that it's probably something broader. Mm-hmm. I mean, reading kind of other literature on, say, US evangelicals, in which mm-hmm. the co- context is quite different, say, Imri Alicia's um, work on mm-hmm. um, evangelicals in the United States, that they, in a sense, are also both religious and mm-hmm. secular. And this kind of, I mean, a, you know, pragmatic awareness that their faith isn't the kind, of, in a UK context, isn't the kind of normative mm-hmm. background, I think, is something that is present outside of London as well. But at the same time, I think that the London context means that it shapes particular kind of consciousnesses around the city as secular and multicultural. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the leaders of the church in particular would kind of equate a secularist discourse with a kind of pro-multiculturalist discourse, which they sometimes saw as implicitly anti-Christian. So I think that makes a difference and it makes a difference in what they talk about. Um, so they would, you know, you'd occasionally have sermons on things like whether or not they should eat halal meat, mm-hmm. for example. And the kind of broader sense was, yes, that it was fine to eat halal meat. But then in another, so that kind of shapes the context. But in a sense, the actual individuals I spoke with, um, yeah, for, for the most part, they were just quite, pragmatic in their relationships with others from kind of different faith backgrounds or or, or, or non-religious backgrounds that the, the the sort of the secular in the sense of it being a space in which different religious forms can coexist was something they were kind of crafting themselves in their forms of sociality with others so what how that works out in different contexts would be I think different if you have other situations in, in which there are less minority religions for example. Mm-hmm. 
And did the um, the actual sort of physicality of the city make any have any impact on their sort of practices or their behaviours or their understandings? Um, I think that the physicality of the city makes a difference in quite a lot of ways. Um, so. I think that in a London context, I think it's probably specific to London rather than other cities, you have a lot of um, large evangelical churches um, that very much position themselves and are kind of conscious of there being almost like brand leaders mm-hmm. in the particular kind of evangelicalism that they do. And then that encourages people to, they, they then develop a name and kind of a famous throughout evangelical networks. So the church that I studied, lots of people say who had been undergraduates at other universities would have heard of this church. And say so when they started work in the city would come to this particular church and people would often travel fairly long distances um, to get there. So it's, I mean, the church was diverse, but there also is a kind of degree of homogeneity um, as well. And I remember sort of interviewing um, the student minister there, for example, and asking him about people who kind of deconvert out of Christianity. And he said, kind of frankly, that um, they wouldn't necessarily see someone convert, deconvert out of Christianity entirely because they, in his words, they set the bar for belief quite high. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if they move out of a church like this one, they're more likely to go to a church that's, say, more liberal on particular um, issues. So people are kind of aware of the kind of culture that they're sort of participating in when they um, join. And then other aspects of the kind of built environment, I mean... It's it as a central London church. It's in a busy part of town, and um, I guess the church. Well, it feels busy, but in a way, it's kind of crafting itself as a space that's slightly outside of that as well. So, where one where people take the time to have dinner with each other after a service. So, the church places a lot of emphasis on that kind of hospitality and forming friendships over tea and coffee and cakes after service, but also lunch and, 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 and dinner as well. And yeah, let's say like food and eating together was a kind of big part of mm-hmm. what, what life was like in, in that setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so your work now has, you've sort of kept the um, emphasis on evangelical Christianity, but you've mm-hmm. now moved into an emphasis on education and parents and parenting and childhood. Yeah. Um, uh, perhaps you could um, sort of talk about that shift into that um, and sort of, Talk about how that fits into your kind of um, progress through the... Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, when you're working out the kind of next project after a PhD, you're kind of always picking up threads that you found interesting that you didn't end up fully exploring in the PhD and then in the book that came out of that. So one of the things um, I found interesting when I was doing the PhD was um, some of the kind of conservative evangelical and conservative Anglican organizations I was going to events of um, would be particularly concerned about children in contemporary British society, the sort of sense that children are under threat from this hostile secular society, that, that they're at risk from sex education programs, the media, the easy availability of pornography online, yeah. in a way that I guess is quite similar to concerns of some evangelicals in some conservative evangelicals in the United States. States. And that wasn't something I had space to explore in the um, thesis. Um, but uh, so 
thinking about that, I was sort of aware that there was a kind of gap in actually looking at the contemporary experiences of children, childhood, parenting, and sort of links with education, sort of evangelicals' involvement in running schools, for example, mm-hmm. um, or homeschooling. Um, so, yeah, I decided to that for my next project that the, this would be the focus of the project. So I, I got funding for, from the Leverhulme Trust for a three-year project um, looking at evangelicalism and childhood. Um, but I decided for this one to kind of broaden the focus out from conservative evangelicalism to look at other forms mm-hmm. of evangelicalism and childhood as well. So I ended up doing fieldwork for that, some with um, conservative evangelical um conservative evangelicals involved in childhood, but also with charismatic evangelicals and also um, with, they would call themselves open evangelicals or say emerging evangelicals, evangelicals who um, are perhaps dissatisfied with kind of dominant evangelical labelings of um, belief and conviction that would be, say, for example, explicitly pro-gay marriage, to look at the kind of different experiences of children in those churches, in schools that are linked with um, these churches, and also kind of looking at the concerns of adults in relation to children as well. So um, are adults concerned about, you know, this kind of you know threat of a secular society against their children, or do they see children as a way to kind of engage with kind of the local community? So that was kind of how I moved into that. And I suppose the kind of focus on education um, is a kind of lingering concern from the first PhD, because I think... What, like the question of kind of education just generally raises really interesting questions about what a person is, how we think about what a human subject is. And often there's this kind of perceived tension between religion and education. Mm-hmm. That if it, to be an educated person is to somehow be kind of autonomous in control of your own mind, then religion is somehow seen as kind of at odds, a kind of threat to that. And particularly children, it's like children are somehow seen as particularly not in control of things. So I, I wanted to kind of do a project that would kind of look at the kind of lived realities of the relationship between religion and education, kind of how um, schools that are, you know, linked closely linked with evangelical churches think about what education is, what their hopes are for children. So, um, and can you discuss sort of um, some of your findings from that, or is because um, this is now sort of being written into yep. the faithful child, I believe. Or is, um... The title of the book will be Evangelicals and the Agency of Children okay. in Modern Britain. So, yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm writing that at the moment. Um, so I guess the findings of it are quite, there are significant differences within different evangelical constituencies, I'm arguing. And I guess the book kind of looks at particular sites of the formation of children or where kind of children are significant within evangelicalism and explores the kind of agency of children in those particular settings. So, for example, I look at kind of, in one chapter, look at kind of cultures of parenting in the churches where I kind of looked at how um, parenting courses and parenting seminars run by churches articulate a particular understanding of what a child is and also what a parent is. So within um, conservative evangelicalism, for example, um, there's a slight reaction away against, a reaction against sort of secular 
expertise mm -hmm. on parenting that kind of in broader contemporary British culture, there's this kind of rise of the parenting expert who mm -hmm. can provide answers on to how best to look after your child, how to parent your child, in which the kind of intrinsic expertise of parents and particularly mothers is sort of distrusted. I mean, there's a kind of longer trend in that and there's lots of um, really good literature in sociology and anthropology on that. There isn't so much on religion and parenting as, as, mm -hmm. as a kind of um, field of study. So I was wanting to kind of open that up through looking at this. And so yeah, within conservative evangelicalism, this kind of distrust of secular parenting expertise and the idea that there is one right way to parent your child. But so kind of this discourse that kind of parents are the ones who have authority, but particularly fathers. Mm -hmm. So this sort of hierarchical ordering of sort of God at the top, then father, mother, child, and this sort of notion of children's obedience is kind of strongly articulated. And that's sort of, you know, self-consciously seen as something that's countercultural to a sort of broader society in which there's a turn towards children mm -hmm. being seen as having rights, autonomy, and, and that kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of one finding. And in, but in, in contrast with that, within charismatic and open evangelicalism, um, you know, there is an emphasis on the kind of freedoms and autonomy of the children in, in, in a particular way, but also um, a sort of discourse of children being int intrinsically good, um, that other, you know, adults can learn from them about faith. So where, you know, some, you know, the conservative evangelicals might talk about children as inherently sinful. You wouldn't see that at all in the same way within charismatic or in open evangelicalism. Children, they're a kind of much more, um, seen as, yeah, good and kind of holding lessons for adults to kind of learn from. Um, so that would be kind of one finding. In terms of like other findings, um, say in one of the chapters looks at, a couple of schools that are particularly run by the open evangelical church. And I found that kind of contrary, I mean, I, don't, I can't generalize that from that to kind of other evangelical churches, but I found it kind of really interesting as a site for looking at um, how this kind of involvement with education is articulated in the setting of the church and also how it's understood by the kind of children um, and what the sort of moral ambitions are of, of that. And I didn't really find any evidence kind of contrary to kind of broader cultural perceptions of the churches trying to bring the children up as Christians necessarily. These were very multi-faith environments, secular in a sense, and the church was kind of very, um, you know, that was kind of how they saw the school. It was about kind of bringing up children to be flourishing citizens in society. But what I found interesting was that there was a kind of, particularly in the secondary school, which was a free school that was run by one of the churches, that there was the church leaders kind of explicitly drew on kind of narratives of sort of Victorian evangelicals who rescued the children of the urban poor through kind of bringing them into their ragged schools. And that was how they saw what they were doing. So they drew on that historical legacy in a way that um, located the contemporary urban poor mm. in particular ways. And they saw the, the church as kind of having a role in sort of saving these children in a kind of contemporary setting, but with the children having agency in that as well, so that the children should be brought up to be kind of like hardworking, productive citizens who, you know, this kind of, I guess there was a aspirational logic in a sense that the children should have no glass ceiling in what they should aim for. And this was how the church saw its 
role in education in that process is about kind of encouraging as a flourishing individuals and flourishing communities, they would have said as well. But it's quite different from how people think about what evangelicals' relationships with schools necessarily look like. I guess, you know, in a sense, it goes back to Max Weber and, yeah. you know, being kind of formed as kind of hardworking, kind of productive, <laughs> making the most of your time and that time being really regimented that you work really hard or as productive as you can be. Yeah. And um, I know that, or I, I believe you're sort of moving or you are also looking at the anthropology of ethics, sociology mm-hmm. of ethics. Um, is that emerging, is that work or that interest emerging from this idea of <clears throat> what a human is, that kind of question? Yeah, I mean, I think that the question of, my interest in in questions to do with ethics and values is something that kind of permeates through all the different yeah. research projects. So um, going back to, yeah, the kind of work on Levinas, I mean, Levinas is primary concern is to show that the human subject is first of all an ethical subject that we have language through our condition of being able to respond to be responsible to another and um in my work on say in the the work on conservative evangelicals i was interested in questions to do with ethical subjectivity so how evangelicals um, saw were shaped by particular ethical norms, so of, say of speaking to each other, and how they saw themselves as answering to a divine, so how they were being shaped as particular ethical subjects. And that was a kind of way of, for me, of moving beyond the kind of othering of conservative evangelicals, so looking at what matters to them, how they felt they should live a good life and the tensions and complexities of that when they encountered differing ethical norms, so living in a kind of pluralist urban space. And I mean, those questions do with ethics in this, in the kind of, in the project, the project on childhood, it's because questions to do with ethics are kind of brought to the forefront in all sorts of ways when looking at children. So what it is to form a person to be a particular kind of subject, what values are you trying to instill in them? What values do the children actually form themselves in particular ways? Where, where are they resourced from? And what are the kind of actual practicalities and consequences of that? And I think that, I mean, those questions to do with values and ethics are there that in sort of in the really hot beginnings of sociology and anthropology as disciplines. So Durkheim's concern with social facts and moral facts and the sacred are kind of primarily moral concerns and his his question of, well, what happened to those after you know he sees the, the decline of religion? And Weber himself is really concerned with kind of cultural values and what happens when they fragment and um, you know how individuals can form their own cultural values in a way. And I think that um, sometimes those questions have ended up being lost in both sociology and anthropology. And I like a lot of the recent work on ethics and values in both anthropology and sociology as a way of kind of speaking to these sort of fundamental questions about what matters to people, yeah. what it is to live a good life, what it is to live a good life within within kind of conditions of finitude mm-hmm. and constraint as well. So um, that's why I kind of see that work mm-hmm. as important and as a sort of underlying thread that animates my work. Mm. And, it's, and it's interesting as well. I mean... Um, um, but often the sort of secular projects or the sort of secular findings of lots of the sort of sociology of secular stuff is about, you know, how are secular people finding without religion mm. um, meaning. But actually it's interesting that even within the context of a religious or Christian 
um, background people are still struggling with those kinds of mm. questions. Um, um, and that also brings your kind of uh, work to a kind of nice um, summary close. Um, so thank you very much for um, uh, speaking with me today. Well, um, it, was, it was fascinating. Um, and um, goodbye. Thanks so much for that, Katie, and indeed Anna. And um, you were telling me that there's going to be mm-hmm. something featured in the new J. J. Bazar, I think we're calling it, the Journal of the British Association for the Study of Religions. Yes, yeah, so the um, Journal of the British Association for the Study of Religions has been uh, rebranded recently. It used to be called Discus, and apparently the story behind that is that when the uh, journal started, it was the one of the first... Um, sort of properly digital journals, but this meant quite literally the journal was on a, a, a floppy disk, or I think it was before even floppy disks, and was passed around people and sent out to people that way, so to save paper, but it was still very much digital, and that it kept that name for um, quite some time, but um, to, to keep up with the times, we thought, let's, let's streamline it, make it obvious what it is. So Journal of the British Association for the Study of Religions, and... Um, Anna Strahan um, had a book that she was talking about in the interview there called Aliens and Strangers. And along with Lois Lee's book, Recognizing the Non-Religious, there was a panel at the BSR conference in Canterbury back in 2015, um, which focused on that those books. And there's a, a journal article coming out of that, sort of roundtable discussions. If you want to know more about Anna's work, Lewis's work and some of the scholars who were feeding back on that. Do check it out very soon. Looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to next week's uh, podcast. So am I. Um, the next in the Socrel series will be in two weeks, but next week we have an interview recorded by my good friend Chris here with uh, Martin Stringer entitled Researching Religious Diversity. Now this came off the keynote lecture mm. that he gave at the BASR conference Um just about a month, month and a half ago. Yeah. Um, and it's not the first time he's been on the, the RSP. It's not. You spoke to him about situational belief back in 2013. Mm, quite an early one. So if you want to check out that interview, um, you can do so whilst you're um, sort of wetting your appetite for Martin's interview next week. It's a cracker. I'm looking forward to, to people hearing it. He gives good interview, Martin does. Um so, yeah, as always, we're thankful to our um, munificent sponsors, the BASR and the NAASR, and also to the Australian Association who sponsor our uh, email lists. If you would like to support the project, you can do so by using our amazon.co.uk.com and .ca links, which give us a small percentage of anything you buy on Amazon, um, from video box sets to uh, green cleaning products. No, there's no judgment here. No, we, we won't even look at the list. It's it's absolutely anything. Um but at no extra cost to you, we get a little bit of the money that Amazon otherwise would make. So yeah. do consider that it's... It's power of the people. Um, you can find us as ever on Facebook, on iTunes, on Twitter. Uh, that's a good place to find us. On what have I forgot? A Google Plus and YouTube, the YouTube, as they say in the states. Um, so do follow the project in any way you can. Please get involved in the conversation. There's been a lot of uh, conversation yeah. going on this year, which has been really yeah. exciting to see. But you can comment and post in any of those places. Yeah. We, we welcome it. In fact, we, we 
We demand Encourage it. Encourage it. Demand it. <laughs> yes. Insist. Yes. In, in payment for this free podcast, you can pay with your comments. Indeed. That's a good way to put it. Other than that, Chris, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>